We don't know what the next second will bring with nowhere to go, you know, we have no shelter to go. We actually don't know wh where is safer to be when the airstrikes are hitting. We don't know if, we, if going to the street is safer or being in the building is safer. Being in the fifth floor is safer or being in the first floor safer so that the rest of the, you know, floors might collapse over your head. These are the kind of debates and things we, we, we talk about every day. I'm Umbreen Khan, and this is Inspired. We begin this week's episode hearing from Ahmed, a Palestinian who arrived in Gaza to visit his family in the last week of Ramadan just a few weeks ago. It was the day before Israeli police fired stun grenades and rubber-coated metal bullets at unarmed protesters who had gathered outside the Al-Aqsa Mosque. They were decrying the forced removal of fellow Palestinians from their homes in East Jerusalem. According to the reports from emergency responders, 163 Palestinians were hurt, more than 80 seriously injured. According to the Israeli police, six officers were injured by the protesters, hurling stones and bottles. Within 24 hours, the Israeli Defense Force began airstrikes. You know, we have not been able to sleep almost barely, barely at all for the past six, seven days because there have been ongoing airstrikes within five to ten minutes, you know, ongoing for the past six days. There has not been ten minutes without airstrikes. The indiscriminate bombings continued for 11 days until a ceasefire was negotiated by Egypt. According to the Office of the High Commissioner of the United Nations, the asymmetrical use of force by the Israeli defense claimed the lives of 222 people in Gaza, including 63 Palestinian children. And during that time, Hamas claimed seven rockets reached Israel, reportedly killing 12 people. In addition to the lives lost, neighborhoods were destroyed, leaving tens of thousands homeless. My wife is from Gaza. Her sister lost her home in Al Jala's building, where Al Jazeera was and Associated Press was. Her brother lost his apartment at Hanadi's Tower. Now they, they have no home. Her family lived in the city of Gaza. She hasn't actually been able to go and see them. The roads have been destroyed between Gaza and Khanyunis. It's also extremely unsafe to just be on the road even for five minutes. We lost a building right behind us, um, a bank. And right next to that bank, there was a civilian building of 65 people. We lost few neighbors. Gaza is infrastructure is completely gone. You know, there is no health inf infrastructure, electricity, water. Electricity is only about two hours a day. There is hardly any drinking water. According to the United Nations and independent observers, more than 450 buildings in Gaza were completely destroyed or damaged by Israeli missiles. That included six hospitals, nine healthcare clinics, and a water desalination plant that supplied 250,000 Palestinians with clean drinking water. Living under violent occupation has taken a toll on Ahmed's family. People are unaware of the mental health issues. Some of my relatives have developed clinical mental health issues, traumas in kids and, you know, speech issues and just, just overall, like, different kinds of disabilities and impairments due to what has been happening. For more than a decade, Ahmed studied and worked in the United States. 
Now he's trying to be strong for his family. I'm happy to be here with them, you know, and, and be a source of their support since I didn't get beat down as they did for the past 12 years. For Palestinians living in the occupied territories, there is an acute sense of vulnerability as they have few legal protections and remain stateless. Yes, I'm a green card holder, you know, but I do hold the Palestinian travel document. I consider myself a Palestinian and I consider myself, you know, on my way to be an American. I look forward to that. However, I am still stateless, you know, because Palestine is not a state and I'm still not a U.S. citizen. You can imagine the kind of challenges that that, ha- that, has, that has created for me. You know, there is that, like you literally have no support and you have to be the exception to the rule in everything that you do. And if you're not exceptional enough, you're just never going to make it. Ahmed sees parallels to the experiences of African-Americans confronting systemic racism and the dangers of ethno-nationalism. He rejects framing the struggle for Palestinian freedom and self-determination as a religious conflict. There is no religious issue from my end, you know. It's just an issue when you have one group of people that wants to exclude others uh, at, at any expense. This is when kind of issues arise. I went to a Christian high school, you know, as a Muslim, and I have, I have a lot of Christian friends. You know, I love... You know, Jewish people, I love Christian people, I love atheist people, you know, I and, and that makes me Muslim, you know, that makes me who I am. You know, I believe in Judaism, I believe in Christianity, and I, and I believe in Islam, and I believe they all funnel into my belief system and spirituality, you know, in, in different ways. Jewish people have lived, and Christians and Muslims, in harmony for many, many years. I'm more than happy to host, you know five Jewish families in my home in Gaza, you know, and and Christian families and atheists in my own home. They can eat what I eat. They can sleep the same way I sleep. You know, they can be protected the same way I protect my family, you know, Uh, and and, and it makes me Palestinian. You know, it it makes it makes me who I am. There's nothing but love in my heart, you know, for uh, for everyone, really. And I hope we can stop being bullied, you know, and we can be given the chance to build and heal and and shine our light to the world and do it while we are living with our families and our own homes. I hope to survive with my family and I hope, you know, for us to live in justice and dignity. And uh, when you have those, you can make solid plans long term. Ahmed has asked that we not use his real name. And for security reasons, we are honoring his request. In this week's show notes, you'll find links to the news reports referenced and the statements from the United Nations and human rights organizations. When we come back, we hear from the leader of an ecumenical coalition that is advocating for a holistic peace in the region and for the United States to be an honest broker. Stay with us. friends. I hope you're enjoying the show so far. I just want to say thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of our community. I don't know if you know this, but we are on the air all the way from Richmond, Virginia to Ketchikan, Alaska, and in so many places in between. We're a national show, and we are a small and mighty team committed 
to bringing you stories and sounds from around the world that convey not only the diversity and the pluralism of our country, but the beliefs that are shaping our world, our politics, our culture, and the ideas that sustain us and inspire us to think about where we are going. And that brings me to this question. If you value us, if you enjoy listening and appreciate what you're hearing, I want to ask you to take a moment to consider becoming a sustaining member of Interfaith Voices or make a one-time donation at interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. That's interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. Thank you, and let's get back to the show. Welcome back to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm your host, Umbreen Khan. Memorial Day weekend is here. It's a holiday that marks the unofficial start of summer, but it is also a time to remember fallen soldiers and reflect on the influence of the United States in the world. And this year in Washington, D.C., the weekend will include a national march on Washington for Palestinians. In the last two weeks, an unprecedented number of activists and allies have protested the airstrikes and the ongoing forced displacement of Palestinians in the occupied territories. While the groups organizing the march are primarily Arab American and Muslim organizations, they are not the only advocates. Calling for proactive engagement is the Reverend Dr. May Elise Cannon. She leads the advocacy organization churches for Middle East peace in Washington, D.C. I spoke with her a few days before the ceasefire was negotiated and brokered by Egypt. Reverend Dr. May Elise Cannon, thank you for joining me on the program. Good to be with you, Umbreen. Would you mind introducing and just telling us a little bit about the organization that you lead? Sure. I'm the executive director of Churches for Middle East Peace, um, CMEP. We call it CMEP. And Churches for Middle East Peace has been around for almost 40 years. It is um, a membership coalition of 30 denominations and member communions. So Christian groups from across the theological spectrum in the United States, Catholic, Orthodox, mainline Protestant. I'm ordained as an evangelical pastor. Um, So it's a broad representation of American Christians who are committed to justice and peace building wherever there's conflicts in the Middle East. And take us back to the founding of this organization. Why did this organization come into being to begin with? Well, it grieves me greatly to say that it came into existence because of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, which is, of course, having another significant flare-up and the latest round of conflict. And so it was created because denominations felt like they didn't have the expertise to be able to know all of the nuances or the details, so they decided to consolidate their resources. So we function a bit as a Christian think tank. We are an advocacy organization, so we have meetings with the White House, 
the State Department, members of Congress, seeking to educate our elected officials, but really to shift U.S. policies towards more holistic engagement um, towards the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and then, of course, you know, other issues like Yemen and Syria and the economic crisis in Lebanon uh, and other conflicts in the Middle East. What draws someone to want to lead an organization that is quite literally always looking at crisis? I mean, what you just described was a series of conflicts that are not small in their scale or in their histories. Um, I had the privilege of working previously for an organization called World Vision, and one of the um, founders of World Vision used to say, break my heart for the things that break the heart of God. And I fundamentally believe that God's heart is utterly broken about the reality is happening specifically in Gaza and in Palestine, and of course, you know, as a result in Israel as well. Um, and so um, I felt called uh, as a minister of the gospel, to um, engage in broken places, to engage in issues of um, social justice, and very much felt called specifically to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict as an example of that. I, I appreciate you sharing that, and I appreciate you giving some kind of insight into what draws you to this. Personally, I'm curious, what drew you to the ministry? When did you make that decision? Um, well, when I was a little, little girl, I wanted to be a Catholic nun because I grew up in an Irish Catholic family where, you know, sisters, nuns got to marry Jesus. And I thought that there was nothing better than marrying, uh, you know, Christ. <laughs> uh, later on in life, um, I was baptized, you know, as a Protestant. Um, and, you know, I didn't grow up in a Christian home, but I felt like God always called me to himself. So when I was a little girl, I'd go to church with, you know, an Episcopal neighbor on one Sunday, and I became a Christian in a Southern Baptist church on another. And I think that was very much um, the spirit of God within me and the spirit of God moving within others that was drawing me to him, if you will. How did that experience shape the way that you see ecumenical work? I wouldn't have known this, you know, as a child, but now I get to work with all of the denominations that influenced me in some way, shape or form, which I think is a beautiful, beautiful gift. And, you know, at Churches for Middle East Peace, the fact that we have such diverse ecumenical engagement, these denominations don't agree on much. And so the fact that they've come together to unanimously agree on a dozen policy positions towards Middle East peace, I think is nothing short of miraculous. What are some of the bigger denominations that are a part of the coalition that illustrate the point you just made, that to come together in and of itself is a big deal. Sure. So um, many of the traditional churches of the Holy Land, um, Orthodox communions would be what we call them. The Greek Orthodox um, Diocese of North America would be a part of our membership, the Armenian Orthodox Church, the Antiochian Orthodox Church. And then we have a number of Catholic groups. So we have um, had observer members through Catholic Relief Services and the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops and Catholic groups like Mary Knoll or the Franciscans. Um, and then a number of the mainline denominations that many people would be familiar with, the Episcopal Church, the Presbyterian Church you know, of the United States, uh, PCUSA would be that denomination, um, the ELCA, the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. Then we have some groups that have a foot in mainline Protestantism and a foot in evangelicalism, the Christian Reformed Church, the Reformed Church in America, my denomination, the Evangelical Covenant Church, peace churches like Church of the Brethren 
um, the American Friends Service Committee, which would be the Quakers, um, and then the Unitarian Universalists also sit on our board. And so when you go from Catholic to Unitarian and Evangelical to Orthodox, that's a pretty broad sweep, if you will. It is. May, can you walk me through the events of the last few weeks? What is happening in Jerusalem? Yes. If you start at this moment right now, um, there is an escalation of violence unlike that which we have seen since the 2014 war in Gaza. Um, you currently have um, a number of things happening. And depending on who's telling the story, the beginning of the story starts at different points, which is actually quite significant. Um, I would start in terms of this recent escalation at the beginning of May. You had a number of Palestinian families living in um, one of the little sections or little villages of East Jerusalem called Shekhjarah, and these Palestinian families were set to be displaced. There was a court order that decided that these family homes should actually be turned um, away from Palestinians and be given to Israeli settlers. And this um, conflict in that regard has been going on for decades, but this court decision was quite significant because it meant these Palestinian families would not be able to live there any longer. And not only could they not live there and would they be displaced, but Israeli settlers would be given their homes. Okay, so I just want to I want to pause there for a moment. What was the what was the rationale given by the court? The Supreme Court. So, on what basis? I mean, it, there, there's a legal yes. process here that you're referring yes. to. On what legal basis is the court making this determination? So it goes back to um, previous law. And so it's based on the fact that historically, um, those homes belonged to Jewish families. And I don't know in terms of those specific homes, if it was pre-1967 or pre-1948, but one of the realities we see in what we call the occupation or the occupied Palestinian territories is that the mechanisms of the occupation are bureaucratic. And so there are laws, for example, that go back to the time of the Ottoman Empire that allowed the Israeli government to confiscate Palestinian land based on land usage. You know, that's not the particular law that's being applied in Sheikh Jarrah, but the Sheikh Jarrah situation is just another example of, you know, depending on the time in history or the snapshot, at one point that land had belonged to Israeli families even though these Palestinian families have to live there, you know, for 30, 40 or more years, um, it's a previous law that's being applied to allow them to be displaced. One of the most profound stories uh, is actually a third generation young Palestinian man. His name is Mohammed al-Kurd. And Mohammed was 11 years old when a video was made about uh, his family being displaced. A part of his family home, it was his grandmother's home, was actually turned over to settlers when he was 11 years old. That day they came at 10 o'clock. I was in the school. My grandma was making coffee. One of the settlers come inside and knocked at the door and asked her, this furniture for who? She said, which furniture? And she come out. When I come back to school, I, I, I knew that my grandma in the hospital. I told, I told them, my grandma in the hospital, my grandma in the hospital. I was like screaming at the settlers and put uh, on the doors, we won't leave. 
feel like anger. I feel so angered that day. He's now in his early 20s, and he's one of the family members who's going to be displaced by this current ruling. Um, and so I'd encourage people to watch the video. It was put out by Just Vision. It's called My Neighborhood. It's very compelling. It shows the story of the Israeli settlers. It shows the story of Mohammed and his family as an example of one of the families that's been displaced. So what happened was um, there have been protests in Shakshara for decades, and those protests escalated and international solidarity activists joined alongside. Um, and the protests were met with quite a bit of physical resistance from the Israeli police. And so you had clashes between protesters uh, and the Israeli police. At the same time, you're in the most sacred month of Islam. You're in Ramadan. And at the same time, you had um, clashes between uh, Israeli police and um, forces on the Temple Mount, where you had worshipers that were actually attacked, uh, Muslim worshipers, Muslim Palestinian worshipers were attacked uh, at the Al-Aqsa Mosque, um, right around the same time as these Shakshara escalations. So if you were to say, like, how did we get to where we are at this moment, where mm -hmm. you have rocket fire from Gaza, you have indiscriminate bombing, you know, Israeli bombing of, um, you know, sites in Gaza, how did we get here? Shakshara was kind of the first phase. The second phase were these um, clashes and the mistreatment of worshipers, which is a violation of religious freedom, mm -hmm. you know, as a part of Ramadan. And then you had Hamas in Gaza that said, this is intolerable. And they began to fire rockets into Israel. Israel's military response uh, is disproportionate. I mean, that's actually the term that they use. And that now you have bombing um, that's in the rocket fire from Gaza uh, and the Israeli bombing of Gaza as well, which has resulted already in you know almost 200 Palestinian deaths, a disproportionate death in Gaza of civilians. Um, more than 60 children have been killed in Gaza. I think what's really, really critical for people to understand is Sheikh Shirah and these displacements is not the exception to the rule. Displacements are happening on a daily basis in the occupied Palestinian territories. The settlement establishment, Israeli citizens that are living in land that is designated to be the future of a Palestinian state, um, has been growing rapidly. And under you know our former president, President Trump, it was blessed and endorsed so much so that the you know U.S. ambassador to Israel was a strong supporter of settlement which was a significant shift in U.S. policy. You know, U.S. policy has historically said that settlements are illegitimate, and the international community goes further than that and says that they're actually illegal, um, that they're illegal according to international law. And so I think it's really important for people not to look at this and to say, this, you know, microcosm that's happening in Shakshara, this case study is an exception to the rule that then excuse the expression, exploded, mm -hmm. that actually this is what's happening daily. It just happened to be that the timing was a spark or a match um, to uh, provoke the world's attention. Do you see a parallel between the global response to what happened here in the United States to George Floyd and what is happening in Jerusalem? 
My hope and prayer, as horrific as George Floyd's death was, it was an eye-opening experience for many Americans who hadn't seen the injustice towards people of color. And yet many people watching that horrific video of George Floyd taking his last breath was a transformative experience to acknowledging racism in the U.S. And in that regard, the cost is unbearable but I believe that children in Gaza have the potential to change the face of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. When you see a child you know, or a family who, and I've spent time in Gaza, the people of Gaza are so incredibly hospitable. I teased that when I started to work with Palestinians, you know, the, the Palestinian grandmothers always say, put more on your plate, hutti, hutti, you know, kuli, kuli, eat more, eat more, that if you spend time with Palestinians, you'll gain weight because their hospitality is so overwhelming. And the same is true in Gaza, that these children in Gaza, you might hear someone say, oh, they're being raised to be terrorists. That is the biggest bunch of nonsense that I have ever heard. Palestinian mothers and grandmothers and fathers want to raise their children in peace where they can have a future and prosperity and economic opportunity. And so in that regard, I think the way George Floyd changed the conversation about race in America Children in Gaza that are right now um, suffering, you know, the effects of indiscriminate bombing um, have uh, the potential to change the conversation about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Mm. There are narratives that I have heard for the last 30 years from people who wring their hands and say the Middle East is there is no potential for having peace here, that there, peace is, there is no path to peace. And I've heard different explanations. I've heard different reasons why some people see it as a religious conflict. Some people see it as a conflict rooted in, you know, ethnic and nationalism that is going to manifest something that becomes essentially untenable for people to see each other eye-to-eye, human being to human being. And one thing we know about war and conflict, wherever you are and whatever time period it is in, is that dehumanizing the person that you see as your enemy is a part of the process, whether it is an official war or a campaign of ethnic hatred or a campaign to get elected to public office by saying that your neighbors are your enemies. And the rise of ethnic nationalism is something that more people in the last year have been paying attention to. Again, not something new. As an organization that is focused on finding a a peaceful path, what realistic vision do you have for a, quote, holistic approach to peace? What does that mean? As I seek to answer that question, I want to highlight the word you just mentioned, nationalism. Um, you know, one of the conversations we've been having within American Christendom in 2021 is a response to the January 6th insurrection at the U.S. Capitol, which was in large part motivated by Christian nationalism. We're having a week of action in response to Christian nationalism. And my organization, Churches for Middle East Peace and a number of others, are actually going to be talking about 
how Christian nationalism plays a part and contributes to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. You know, Christian nationalism is about the exceptionalism of America, and we do the same thing as Christians in terms of our perspectives related to Israel. We exceptionalize Israel uh, as a modern nation state, which is a part of why you have these allegiances between conservative Christians in America, you know, and the state of Israel. But in terms of a pathway to peace, what does it look like? The Israeli-Palestinian conflict is the most well-studied conflict of our day. And there is actually not just one path to peace. There are dozens. There are dozens of geopolitical solutions that could be applied if you had willing um, political uh, leadership, if you had leadership that was willing to take risks, that was willing to pursue what we call proximate justice, no one side of the conflict is ever going to get complete, absolute justice. And so how do you come up with a solution that is the best solution for all people that's not based on the exceptionalism of one people group over another people group. And the issue is not that there's not political solutions. There are plenty. We could have one state. We could have two states. We could have federated states. So the real problem is that there has not been political leadership. What does it look like? What's the first step that you see? The first step for the U.S. administration is to be a fair broker. If we really are going to invite people to the table of peace, we can't go to the table choosing one side over the other. So one of the great challenges we had under the Trump administration was he put forward a peace plan, which... Um, was such a misnomer because President Trump was only engaging with the Israeli side of the conflict. People may not be aware that under the Trump administration, all ties with the Palestinian Authority and direct conversation with Palestinians was completely cut off. And so how can you have peace if at a starting point, you don't have all of the parties of the conflict present at the table. Um, and in this particular moment, CMAP and many other groups that are in coalition with us are calling on the U.S. government to demand an immediate end to the violence. Civilians are the ones who are going to be the most devastated and the most affected, particularly civilians in Gaza, but also civilians in Israel. And so the first step to this conflict is to call for an immediate end, to call for a ceasefire. But then unless the core issues of the occupation of the Palestinian people are addressed, there will never be peace because we're putting Band-Aids on the problem instead of addressing the core issues. And what is that core demand? So the core demand is that the United States would play a role in bringing about an end to the occupation of the Palestinian people. When you have such a differential of power between the Israeli government and, you know, the Palestinian Authority, which is a pseudo government, I mean, it's not independent by any means, um, you know, you have such a disproportionate uh, difference in power, it's unrealistic to expect them to be able to um, sort things out on their own in a way that is fair, equitable, uh, and re reflective of justice. Can you explain what you mean by power differential? Well, a starting point is even just the economic difference. So when you look at the per capita income of an individual in Israel versus in East Jerusalem, the West Bank, or Gaza, so Palestinians that are living in occupied territories, the economic differential is that individuals in Israel make 10 times more. 
And you can look at the specific statistics in Gaza, the differential is even greater than that. So you have economic power almost um, unilaterally in the hands of Israel uh, in terms of, you know, let's talk about U.S. financial support. Let's talk about U.S. military support, let alone U.S. political support. And so when I talk about a differential in power, the Palestinian Authority can't act. You know, the Palestinian Authority doesn't even have um, independent financial resources that are not ultimately under the subject of the Israeli government. So when taxes are collected in the West Bank, for example, they go through Israel and then Israel releases those funds to the Palestinian Authority. So the idea that you have two entities that are independent and that can equally sit at the table is just a fallacy. The Palestinian Authority is not economically independent from Israel. Is it politically? That's right. Is it politically independent from Israel? They're seeking to be. I mean, so they have you know observer status at, at the United Nations as an observer state. But no, I mean everything in the West Bank and Gaza, uh, and of course East Jerusalem, is ultimately under the control of Israel. There's a critique emerging about what's happening, and people are invoking settler colonialism as a framework for talking about the Middle East conflict, which seems to be different from the way this narrative has often been framed in the past between democracy and terrorism. We certainly hear that language and we see that framework. Um, My PhD is in the history of American Protestant engagement in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And one of the things I think that doesn't serve us in trying to understand the contemporary realities is that at different snapshots in history, the players... Um, manifested different roles. You know, the historical narrative, many, many people are still operating under a historical narrative of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict from the 1970s when the PA didn't acknowledge, you know, Israel's right to exist. Well, that changed under Yasser Arafat, right? The Palestinian Authority acknowledges Israel's right to exist and in fact has security coordination between the Palestinian Authority and Israel. And so, To some degree, you know, I'm a firm believer we need to learn from history. But if we don't know our history, that's a problem. So even when you talk about this paradigm of terrorism, in 1948, prior to the establishment of the State of Israel, the forces that became the Israeli army and became the Israeli military were identified by the world as Jewish terrorist organizations. So even that framing of terrorism is not the most helpful construct in terms of understanding the history of the conflict. I'm talking with the Reverend Dr. May Elise Cannon, an ordained pastor in the Evangelical Covenant Church and the executive director of Churches for Middle East Peace. We pick up our conversation with some of the misconceptions folks unfamiliar with the history of the region may have and how that influences attitudes about the possibility of peace. You point out something that I think many folks may not be familiar with, which is that history, that history of the region, because it is often framed as something that is unsolvable. How do you, as an, or an advocate, go up against that? 
Well, because we're a Christian organization, some Christians believe that the conflict between Jews and Arabs goes back to the descendants of Abraham, the sons Isaac and Ishmael, and that Isaac and Ishmael were meant to be in conflict. And this is a a theocratic conflict. This is a conflict ordained by God that's gone on for thousands of years. That's fundamentally not true. One, it's not true in the scriptures. When you read about Isaac and Ishmael, they actually um, buried their father together. You know, uh, Ishmael's mother, Hagar, was out in the wilderness and she cried out to God and God heard her cry. And if Hagar is the mother of the Arab people, the mother of, you know, Muslim people, and God hears her cry, that should change our paradigm in terms of the way you know, we understand the conflict today. And so I think it's critically important for people to understand Jews, Christians, and Muslims in this land, the land that we call holy, the land of Israel, the land of Palestine, in large part lived in peace before the 20th century. How are people of faith bringing that, that witnessing, that belief into the public square? I think one of the most beautiful things we witness in multi-faith engagement is when people of different religious traditions stand up on behalf of the other. And so, you know, we have, as an example, many, many, many Jews who are shouting from the rooftops that the treatment of Israel via the occupation, you know, this bombing of Gaza, that it is an injustice and they're standing against it. And you have a whole movement of Christians in the United States and around the world that are saying, you know, we find the Holy Land sacred, that we um, want to stand against anti-Semitism and want to stand, you know, in this historic relation between Jews and Christians, and we are going to stand up against injustices towards Palestinians. And I think that's really, really profound and quite beautiful. When you say that the holistic path to peace involves the United States playing a central role, do you think that the Biden administration, one, is up for that role? Not yet. I think they can be. I have hope that, you know, I think there's many, many good you know, moral people within the Biden administration. But in general, the Biden administration has wanted to stay out of foreign policy. They've been very domestically focused, which is certainly laudable. I think now with this recent flare up, they can't afford to ignore the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, I think they have some real hard decisions to make in the days ahead. And You know, part of what we need to understand is the U.S. is culpable in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. We are not a neutral player. We are very invested, and historically, we've been very invested in one side over the other. Um, So I think that's the hope that I have. What we're calling people to, we're calling people to contact the White House on the cover of our webpage at www.cmep.org. There's an action alert calling on President Biden and the U.S. government to demand an immediate ceasefire and to do everything we can to constructively contribute to these recent escalations being brought to an end. What you just said is that the United States government is culpable. In in what way? How, how is the United States culpable? On the one hand, you're asking the United States government to play a central role in mapping peace. The Trump administration failed in, in, your, in your analysis in doing that because it shut down conversation and communications with the Palestinians and was simply amplifying the demands of the Israelis. If, I, if I'm hearing you correctly, 
at the same time, you're still calling for the United States to be the, the, the central player in this holistic plan. How do you reconcile those? The U.S. needs to um, make right our disproportionate engagement. And I think, you know, many, many people in the U.S. government, particularly at the State Department, are well equipped in terms of their understandings of the conflict. They know where every settlement is. They have maps of, you know, the divisions between the occupied Palestinian territories and Israel proper. They have all of the political tools to be able to come up or encourage, you know, constructive solutions. And so um, the U.S., uh, in a constructive way, demanding that Israeli leadership come to the table, uh, I think is the most important role that we can play. Let me ask you five things you'd like to see happen. Five things. Um, One, that the U.S. would stop blocking the U.N. Security Council's efforts in this regard. Two, that they would independently call for an immediate ceasefire and put appropriate pressure on both Palestinians and the Israeli government in that regard. Three, that the Biden administration would say that the Israeli-Palestinian conflict will now become a priority because we can't afford for it not to, um, that they don't have the luxury of leaving it off the list of issues that they're going to address. Four, that there would be an acknowledgement that the underlying issues to the conflict um, are long going, that that they've been happening for decades. The occupation began in 1967 and that the occupation has to be addressed as a core cause. And number five. Number five. That political negotiations for a long-lasting peace, you know, would be re-engaged. Increasingly, there are a number of members of Congress who are calling for more holistic perspectives and U.S. engagement towards the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And one of the members of Congress that's really been leading the way is Betty McCollum. She's had legislation the last several years. She has new legislation that was just proposed that's calling for human rights for Palestinians. And so we're very encouraged that the number of co-signers has grown. We do a lot of advocacy calling on our elected officials to support the McCollum legislation. You know, I appreciate you sharing how difficult this is and how difficult the path is. Do you feel like it's achievable? I fundamentally believe that Israeli and Palestinian mothers want the same thing. Israeli mothers don't want their children to go to serve in the military, you know, where they may actually be doing a ground invasion in Gaza in the weeks ahead. Israeli mothers don't want that. Palestinian mothers don't want their children being raised in the resistance, fighting for their independence. You know, and I fundamentally believe the vast majority of people in Israel and in the Palestinian territories want peace. And the only way for that to happen is for these historic injustices that have been ongoing. They've just been putting more and more and more pressure on the Palestinian people. And until those issues are addressed, peace won't be possible. But I think there's a global will and a will in the civilian populations of Israel and Palestine to help make that happen. I couldn't do the work I do if I didn't believe peace was possible. What role do the voices uh, from the Christian community that are arguing essentially on the other side, how, how do you see them? What, what is your response to them? 
I believe that faithful Christians have the opportunity to reclaim our voice in the public square. And, you know, part of my challenge to Christians who might be listening is if you believe in, you know, there's verses in Genesis that talk about God's promises to Abraham and how God desires to bless Abraham and his descendants. The next part of that verse is that the descendants of Abraham would be a blessing to the world. And so for people who love Israel, the encouragement would be continue to love Israel. And if you love the people of Israel, you have to love their Palestinian neighbors too. That when Israel is perpetuating injustice to their Palestinian neighbors, the only result will be war and conflict. And so the opportunity that Christians have, you know, those who believe in the Hebrew scriptures, but then those who believe in the person of Jesus is, you know, Jesus's message was love your neighbor. And not only that, love your enemy. And so I think the opportunity for Christians is to reclaim our voice in the public square, to be advocates of peace, but not only peace as in absence of conflict, peace as in also being advocates for justice. How do you explain the alliance between evangelical Christians and the support for um, the state of Israel? Sure. Um, Well, there's a theological belief that the Jewish people have to be restored to their historic homeland in order for Christ to come again. And so there's a paradigm with a theological, you know, lens on it. There's a paradigm of the Jewish people as God's chosen people um, who are viewed as exceptional or viewed as good in a way that others are not. And so the other side of that paradigm is Arabs or Muslims being viewed as, you know, the enemy of Israel or being viewed as evil or as you mentioned earlier, being viewed as terrorists. And, you know, we even heard that from Vice President Pence when he gave that historic speech at the Knesset, the first ever U.S. vice president. And he talked about Israel being good and the enemies of Israel being bad, which is just a fundamental misrepresentation of humanity, um, that all people have the potential to be good and that all people have, you know, the right to equality and human rights and freedom and liberation. So how powerful is end times theology? Um, I think it's very powerful, but I think in large part, it's powerful because people have not been exposed to an alternative. So I call it, you know, default Christian Zionism or default. There's all these big terms, you know, end time theology is also called dispensationalism. And so there's this default dispensationalism where most people have no idea what dispensationalism means, but they've inherited some of the presuppositions of it in their current beliefs. And that's actually the starting point. I mean, for Americans in general, but American Christians specifically, the vast majority have no idea what's happening in Israel and specifically what's happening in the Palestinian territories. Um, So a starting point is to introduce them to, you know, Palestinian brothers and sisters in Christ, that actually the church has been alive in Palestine and historic Palestine since the time of Acts, you know, in the Bible. Um, And so a lot of the history is a great starting point because so, so, so many Americans are just unaware. If someone's listening and says, I want to learn more, I need to understand it, I'm not sure who to trust, because there's a lot of misinformation, there's a lot of... um there's a lot of concern about not knowing what's the right source. Where do you where do you direct folks, particularly those within your own tradition, who are looking for a way to understand the implications and the you know the the, the circumstances that 
are on the ground today, but also the, the, the history that you're saying we need to understand to be able to wrap our heads around this? We actually put together a book so that we could answer that very question. We found so many resources are one-sided. And so we put together a book that's called A Land Full of God, Christian Perspectives on the Holy Land. And A Land Full of God has perspectives that are pro-Israel, perspectives that are pro-Palestinian, and perspectives that are more nuanced. You know, Archbishop Tutu gave us a chapter that is called Apartheid, and the U.S. head of the International Christian Embassy, which is one of the leading Christian Zionist groups, wrote a chapter all about how unless you're on the side of Israel, you're not on the side of God. And we felt like this would be a good place for us to not say you know, what do Christian Zionists think? Let's have Christian Zionists say what they think. And people can look at that and then make an informed decision about what constructive peace might look like moving forward. Constructive peace. I like that. Um, is that a is that a frame that you would encourage people to start thinking about what constructive peace looks like? We talk often about how pragmatism is a necessary step towards peace. And so, you know, there is a moral struggle. We have to value the life of a Palestinian as much as we value the life of an Israeli. That's a moral conversation and a moral consideration. And at the same time, you know, slavery in the United States and slavery, you know, globally was not ended by a win of the moral argument. It was won by small, incrementic, pragmatic steps that ultimately brought an end to slavery. Um, And so in that regard, we talk all the time about what are pragmatic steps that we can take to move forward that will end the loss of civilian life, that will end violence, that will be constructive steps towards dismantling the occupation um, and towards working toward peace. Mm. Thank you for joining. Is there anything else that you'd like to say? There's a verse in our sacred scriptures that talks about praying for the peace of Jerusalem. And we take that to heart and we pray for the peace of Jerusalem. But one of the things we talk about at Churches for Middle East Peace uh, is that while we're praying for peace, we're also committed to working toward justice. And so that's the invitation that we not only pray and engage you know, religiously and spiritually, but that we also would be social advocates um, and that we would use our voices to call on our elected officials to act justly in response to this current escalation, but to the occupation and the realities as a whole. Thank you so much, Reverend Dr. May Elise Cannon. Thank you for joining. Good to be with you, Umbreen. That was Reverend Dr. May Elise Cannon, an ordained pastor in the Evangelical Covenant Church. She's the executive director of Churches for Middle East Peace. She's earned multiple doctorates, her Ph.D. from the University of California, Davis, focused on American history with a minor in Middle Eastern studies. She also earned a doctorate of ministry and spiritual formation from the Northern Theological Seminary. That's all for this week. If you missed any part of this week's show, you can stream it online at interfaithradio.org. While you are there, you can also learn about us, read the show notes, sign up for our newsletter, and explore the archives. You can find our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or the podcaster of your choice. Just search Interfaith Voices. And while you are there, you can help us out by leaving a rating and a review. Special thanks to our founder, Maureen Fiedler. This week's episode was produced by Kevin McCarthy. Inspired is a production of Interfaith Voices. We rely on the generous support of our listeners 
to bring you this show. I'm your host and executive producer, Umbreen Khan. Remember to stay safe, stay well, and stay connected. I'll see you next week. Thank you.